In the name of the Father, and the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. For those who may not have been here, we have been thinking together uh, this fall about overcoming our fears. And um, I have been sharing with you an acronym that I hope has been uh, as helpful to you as it has been to me. Face your fears with faith. Examine your assumptions in light of the facts. Attack your anxieties with action. And then release your cares to God. So the first week, we talked about the importance of facing our fears, um, some of which, of course, are grounded in reality and therefore can be very helpful and very healthy, but many of which are grounded in things that will likely never take place. We went on the second week to talk about the importance of examining the facts in a culture where far too many people play far too loosely with the truth and therefore can easily mislead us with, uh, and manipulate us through faith, through uh, fear. The last couple of weeks we spent time talking about some of the fears that are most common to us. So we talked about a fear of failure uh, or the fear of disappointing other people. And then last week, a fear that is perhaps a little, uh, a little less tangible, but also very common, the fear of insignificance, that my life won't make a difference. Viktor Frankl said, life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by a lack of meaning and purpose. Nietzsche seconded that motion. He said, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. There. I have quoted Nietzsche and Frankel all in the first minute of the sermon. I can get over the fear now of not having anything meaningful to say. <laughs> Today, one of the most common of all fears. Sue Bourne, in a BBC documentary, says... We are all a bit scared of loneliness, of being left, of not being loved or needed or cared about. Lonely hits a spot of fear in all of us, even if we don't acknowledge it. We all feel lonely at times. Even Jesus, the old spiritual says, had to walk this lonesome valley. And of course, loneliness is not exactly the same as solitude. We also, whether we are introverts or extroverts, we also need time alone, and we need time alone with God. Um, I have been spending time over the last couple of weeks visiting some of our college students on their various campuses. And uh, one of the things that I am always reminded of is, especially for freshmen, uh, those first two weeks are pretty hairy. <laughs> I mean, you wind up meeting 8,000 new people. You always have to put your best foot forward. It can be really exhausting. At times, you need to just shut the door. But loneliness is something different. The feeling of sadness that comes from feeling isolated, like you have no real companions uh, to do life with. So we all need solitude, 
but we are also wired for companionship. And there is this mysterious dance between these two very powerful but opposing needs. The 17th century poet John Milton once wrote, loneliness is the first thing which God's eye named as not good. He was referring, of course, uh, to that second chapter of Genesis where you remember God creates the first human being and then he says, it is not good that the human be alone. That's not to say that everyone needs to be married, which is the way that verse was interpreted for centuries, but that all of us, introvert or extrovert, need human connections. I mean, think about it. We begin the first nine months of our lives um, actually hooked up to someone. We are never alone. Is it any wonder, then, that a tiny baby um, in the middle of the night cries out, not only because he or she is hungry or needs to be changed, but simply needing to be held? The British psychologist John Bowlby, years ago, uh, identified what he called attachment theory. He believed that we are actually genetically predisposed to have a few significant relationships in our lives. And he identified three distinct styles of attachment. He talked about secure attachment, anxious attachment, and avoidant attachment. So individuals that experience secure attachment, which was about 56% of the people that he worked with, are people who find it easier, not easy, but easier to be in a loving, caring relationship, presumably because they have had a connection with a caring uh, adult when they were younger. The second group he called anxious attachment. And these are people who fear that their mate or their friend or their family, uh, that those people don't love them as much as they love their family or friends. One woman shares her anxious fears this way. She writes, rejection for me came at an early age. I have been in beautiful relationships that I have destroyed because I was afraid of others leaving me. My mantra was, I will leave you before you have a chance to leave me. Everything they do is scrutinized or tested to see if they still care for me. And when I finally test them beyond what they can bear, it breaks both of our hearts. Those I care for most are the ones I fear losing the most. And Bowlby estimated that about 19 people of those he saw fell into that category. The third category, about 25% fell into, uh, just avoided attachment at all. And these were people who likely did not receive a lot of nurturing early in their life, and so they learned to cope by becoming emotionally self-sufficient, independent of any kind of intimacy at all. So this is a little like a Psych 101 class where every anxiety or neurosis that gets mentioned, you try on for size. You go, ah, that sounds a little like me, or um, that sounds like so-and-so. Of course, not all loneliness uh, springs from 
attachment concerns. It may be that we have experienced the loss of someone close to us, a friend or a partner, or that we're going through a time of depression. I'm thinking about a man, I would say he's in his mid-60s, who had recently lost his wife of 42 years. They met in their early 20s. He said, it hit me hard that I was all alone in this empty house. Fear set in. Now what? Was I going to have to endure this empty feeling the rest of my life? Loneliness often accompanies moves in our life. Uh, a recent Census Bureau data report said that Americans move on average a little over 11 times in their lives. Some of you have moved less, some of you have moved more, but each time we move, we lose meaningful relationships. This again is part of the reason why we deliver care packages to our college students. We're not just checking up on them. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but we want them to know that in their new surroundings, they have not been forgotten. It used to be that a person had about two or three jobs in their entire life. And of course, many of those significant relationships in their lives were developed at work. Today, at least in uh, an article that I read this summer, it was said that if you plan to get ahead in life, you will likely switch jobs about every three years for the rest of your life. What does that mean? mean for meaningful relationships. When we retire, we say goodbye to many of those relationships uh, that have been a part of our life. When we relocate to Florida or to Arizona or up north, the truth is we leave behind neighbors and friends. That is a big deal. All of a sudden, we are tasked with the job of finding a whole network of friends and all at the tender age of, what, 65, 70? Technology, of course, can help us stay connected. Many of us have learned how to Skype or how to do FaceTime. And yet, on the other hand, those same wonderful devices can leave us feeling more isolated. We speak now in 280-character tweets, but often at the expense of hearing another's voice, or looking into each other's eyes, or receiving a hug. When things get tough, we send our friends a sad-faced emoji, which really can't take the place of a hug. In an article in The Atlantic titled, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? A psych professor at San Diego State University writes, the number of teens who get together with their friends nearly every day dropped by 40% between 2000 and 2015. It's worth asking what effect that might have long term. And of course, it's easy when we are the one that is feeling lonely to imagine that this could only happen to me. <laughs> and if only I was a little more attractive, 
or a little more talented or a little more gregarious, I would be spared this affliction. And yet there is ample evidence that loneliness affects the poor and the rich, the well-known and the obscure. Albert Einstein once wrote, it is a strange thing to be so widely known and yet to be so lonely. The beautiful actress Anne Hathaway, when she was 21, confided, loneliness is my least favorite thing about life. The thing I am most worried about is just being alone without anybody to care for or someone who will care for me. So in light of all of this, how do we not overcome, but how do we learn to live with loneliness and not allow it to rule us? Well, one of the things that we can do is to go back to our acronym and remember to examine our assumptions in light of the facts. I mean, let's face it. When we are feeling lonely or isolated, um, we can tend to interpret every social interaction in our lives in the most negative possible way. So if someone doesn't respond to my email in an hour, it's not that they might be busy or not have seen my email. They don't like me. If I pass by someone in the hall at school or at work or, God forbid, at church, and they don't look at me or talk to me, it can't be that they are preoccupied. They must be mad at me. If someone is in a bad mood, this can even happen at home, it must be my fault. In my house it is, but a minister, I'll hear about that later. A minister writes about a time when he was in college, and during the summer he was making money by um, working in a women's shoe sale department. And uh, one day a couple came into the store looking at shoes. Um, they were picking things from the various display cases. He stood behind them and, and said, hi, can I help you with something today? Uh, but neither responded. He waited a few moments and then asked again. Still, no response. A third time, this time he finds himself getting a little irritated. Did they think so poorly of a shoe salesman that they didn't even feel they needed to reply? The store sells some high-end women's shoes. He thought, these are just wealthy people um, who don't even think they have to deal with a sales clerk until they want him to go to the back and get something for them. As he stood there, stewing over all of this, the couple turned around. And it was only then he noticed they were communicating in sign language. Examine our assumptions in light of the facts. And can we admit that often our tendency, whenever we are experiencing any kind of fear, is to actually do the opposite of what would be helpful? Common sense would tell you that if we are feeling lonely, the thing that we should do is to reach out to other people and try to be around them. And yet, I really don't need to tell you 
that often when we are feeling lonely, the first thing we do is to withdraw and to stay to ourselves. And yet, over the years, I have watched many a courageous isolator who, let's say they retired, um, for example, I have watched them take a part-time job, not only to raise a little income, but to get some of the necessary social interaction that they were missing. I have seen um, introverted singles volunteer, be it at a church or anywhere else, and there develop meaning relationships with people who otherwise they would never have crossed paths with. For some, um, combating loneliness, loneliness includes getting a pet, which is lovely, and I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but the simple truth is that even the most lovely of pets cannot serve as a surrogate for people. The older we get, the more important re-engagement becomes. As we mature, as Americans, we spend a lot of time focused on our financial security. And yet researchers tell us over and over again that the single most important indicator of your happiness during retirement is not how much money you have, but rather the quality of your relationships. If we would invest as much time in our long-term relationships as we do in our 401ks, we would likely live longer and healthier lives. Volunteering is really one of the best ways to connect, and historically, Americans have been the very best at that. Again, I have watched people engage in uh, volunteering at one of the hospitals or at the zoo or at an elementary school or at the Welcome Inn and connect with all kinds of people. The other day we finished a, uh, a board meeting for the Welcome Inn and a whole group of us gathered around this one woman who was showing pictures of her son's wedding. In fact, two of the members of the board had actually introduced the son to his new wife. This summer, um, another member of the board lost his wife of many years to cancer. As I went to visit at the funeral home, um, as I'm signing the, the guest book, I smiled because here was a list of all of these people on the board who had already been there. And that, of course, leads to one last, but I think ultimately very important strategy for addressing our fear of being alone, and that is getting involved in a vibrant local church. I know that sounds self-serving, but AARP, a couple of years ago, said that people who are involved in a church or a synagogue or a mosque were 40% less likely to report a sense of loneliness than those who were not. So does that mean if you show up on Sunday morning, you will never be lonely? Does it mean that all those unchurched masses out there are just hopelessly cut off from the world? No. But one of the great things that a church can offer to individuals and to couples, incidentally, because an us can also get lonely, is a community. And I might add, an intergenerational community, which is something very rare in our society. 
a group of people with whom you can share a common purpose, laugh and cry and just do life together. I have watched this at every age. So uh, Graham and Evan's brother Connor is now a freshman at U of M, so I saw him uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I was remembering as I visited with him that last year, uh, Connor had this, I don't know, like a senior prom or some kind of dance. And he was accompanied to that dance by not one, not two, but three beautiful stage girls. Really, where else can that happen other than the church? Really. First Saturday of every month, um, we have a group of men who get together at an ungodly time, 7 a.m. over at the Avenue on Woodward, for deeply theological insights by highly sensitized uh, 21st century men. It's about connecting. It's about community. And it doesn't just happen. In fact, too often it doesn't happen. So sometimes it takes multiple times to find a Bible study or a committee or a book club to develop some connections. So what I'm saying is don't give up. We, like every church I know, like to think that we are better at assimilating new people than we really are, which is why right after this service you will run to talk to people who you already know and why you seem to have so much trouble wearing your name tag, and why you ask when you have to, are tasked with this, why you ask the very same people to do the very same things over and over again, and then complain that the same people are always doing these things. Have I made that clear enough? <laughs> Sometimes, on the other hand, we actually get it right. So in the Gospels, we read about this paralyzed man who was carried on a stretcher by four of his friends in the hope that Jesus might heal him. It's interesting, in neither account of this story, in Matthew or in Mark, uh, does it mention that the paralyzed man actually asked for help. But clearly his friends cared enough to make sure he got to the healer. Because of their faith, Jesus said, not the man's faith, but that of his friends, this guy got healed. Every one of us in this room needs friends like that. I have heard them called stretcher bearers. We all need people around our trampoline who love us so much that they will care for us when we cannot walk it ourselves. I agree with all of those existential philosophers who describe loneliness as a fundamental part of life. Like Jesus, we too must walk this lonesome valley. But we don't have to be alone in our loneliness. And this is what the church is supposed to look like at our best. Not just people worshiping together, but volunteering together and studying together and growing together, playing together, doing life together in community. Amen.